Welcome to the Conscious Combat Club, trauma-informed martial arts by women for women. I'm your host, Georgia, and I cannot wait to go on this journey with you. Please note that some listeners might find this content distressing. Take care, connect with your support networks, and refer to the organizations in the show notes below. Hello to all of our incredible listeners. I just want to start off by saying I'm so sorry that we have been MIA. Sometimes being a small team trying to do a huge amount of work becomes overwhelming, but I personally had a really restful time over the Christmas and New Year period, and I'm really excited to be getting into delivering the podcast content and other content for all of you who are interested in making martial arts a more accessible, inclusive, and beautiful space for everyone who participates or wants to participate. I have had a request for a podcast topic, which I wanted to share with you all because I actually just think it's too big and too juicy to be a podcast topic. And I want to be able to engage with some of you when I present the information. So we are going to be running a free webinar. You can check out all of the details in the show notes. It is going to be called the in brackets, combat athletes body keeps the score. And it is all about how when trauma survivors step onto the mat, there are a myriad of ways that their bodies can be impacted, everything from dissociation and bodily disconnection to the body being the site for trauma to be stored and potentially released and and how that interplays and interreacts with martial arts training. So if you want to come along to that, please check out the show notes and register. Even if you can't make it live, there's a recording there. And I want to make a second apology to say that this episode should have been released during the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. It didn't happen. It's 100% on me. It was recorded and ready to go. So that just shows you um, how serious procrastination can impact me when I'm not well-breasted and hopefully a lesson that I'll take into 2024 or at least the first few months when I'm feeling more gung-ho about balance. But this episode is going to be worth the wait. You're going to love it. So I have on Donna Abella, who is a graduate of the Conscious Combat Club. She's also an esteemed writer, incredibly talented, beautifully beautifully blends trauma-informed practice into her work. And she recently published a piece um, about the Magdalene laundries in Australia. And I'll let her explain all of what they were and what that means and the historical significance of it. This is not going to be a martial arts podcast. So you might like to press pause and wait till next week for when we have something that's a little bit more related to martial arts training. This is going to be more about gender, about the patriarchy, about historical oppression of women and how some of those things that happened in the past might be impacting the very real situation we have currently where women are dying at the hands of men. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy the podcast episode. I hope I get to see you at the webinar or at least I get to connect with you through the recording and I will speak to you again soon and thank you again for all of your patience. 
All right, Donna, let's kick us off. We've got a huge, huge topic to talk about really today as part of the 16 days of activism as we start to dig in why it is that we have this societal system that has and continues to oppress women um, and all sorts of different minorities. In particular, in this conversation, of course, we're focusing upon women. And I think the story that you have produced about the Magdalene Laundries is a really great way that is not so distant history to talk about exactly how the systems of oppression and patriarchy were embedded in our culture. Let's start with the the Magdalene laundries. What what was a Magdalene laundry? What were they in general? And then in the context of Australia, how were they present? Uh So Magdalene laundries were institutions um, for fallen women, inverted commas, um, so women who had departed from the norms of Christian society, um, particularly as defined by the Catholic Church. Um, and so Catholic Catholic theology, you know, uh, for a very long time has divided women into a pure, impure, uh, Magdalene's, Madonna's, um, whores, Madonna's. I mean, you know, damned whores, God's police is kind of an extrapolation of that thinking. Um, and so Magdalene laundries are institutions that go back to the 12th century in Europe. And they were designed to uh, institutionalise women who had departed from those those norms, who were, you know, in some way fallen uh, and in some way impure. Now, that um, tends to be sexual. So women who were sexual in any way um, or had or were signified as uh, somehow identified as having been a sexual being were put in these. And so the thing is we're talking in our, our terms today, we're talking about women who may have been raped, you know, who may have been a victim of incest, you know, who um, or who may might have been happily sexually active, but before, you know, contraception and, and abortion and, and those sorts of things. Um, and so women who, you know, sort of fell into that basket um, within the Catholic world were institutionalised in um, Magdalene, what we now call Magdalene laundries. Um, and so they were institutionalised sometimes for life in Europe. In Australia, they were um, institutionalised for a period of two years and then released into the community, you know, hopefully reformed. <laughs> so they were reform institutions. They were correctional centres, um, prisons, if you like, for women who um, had departed from those very strict gender norms. Um, and in these institutions, they did penance. So they were called penitentiaries, which is what we call prisons, um, in order to do penance. So people not... Uh, uh, informed by a Catholic awareness, um, penance is something you do for your sin. So these women were considered to be sinners in need of some sort of spiritual and moral reform. Um, and so the way that happened was that they lived with religious sisters, so nuns, who were on the spectrum, or, you know, on the continuum of, you know, pure and impure women. They were the purest you could get. <laughs> you know, they were holy. They walked on water. Um, and so you had, you know, pure women, holy women, uh, reforming impure women. Um, and in these institutions, these fallen women were um, in, uh, contemplating their depravity. So they were considered depraved in some way. Um, and so they were being reformed through uh, religious practice um, and also through hard work. 
And so the hard work on offer was a laundry um, because a laundry, you know, washing was women's woman's work. And so it became an industry that was seen to be fit and proper. Um, for these women, um, and they were, you know, you know, they were steam laundries. They were, you know, very, very, you know, hard labour. Um, uh, yeah, so that that's kind of generally what they were um, penitentiaries for women who didn't fit the, you know, the very strict um, norms of the day. When I was listening to you talk about this um, in the ABC episode, I was wondering if there was like what the equivalent was, or if there was an equivalent for men. Um, like, of course, there were prisons, but was there the same system set up for men who didn't do what the church wanted or was it different? Were women targeted? Like, what was the gendered aspect of that? Look, I think this is a really good question because there is no equivalent because basically these institutions were for women um, and the purpose was to shame women. These I call them shame factories, you know, to, you know, myself because that's what they were doing they were you know they were uh taking women off the streets incarcerating them um and every day they were it's uh they lived by a very strict regime of confessing sins doing penance for their sins so doing some sort of recompense um and so this idea of uh being depraved be, be innately depraved as women who were somehow sexual um, and subject to systemic shaming. Now, I don't know that you get institutions for men that um, subject men to systemic shaming because of their gender. Mm. These women were shamed because they had departed from a gender norm, um, whereas I, I, of course, men are shamed in prison and humiliated in prison, but it's not because they're men. It's not because they're innately depraved or or uh, deviating from a, a masculine norm, for example. So I don't think there's an equivalent, really. Yeah, so interesting to think about and thinking about how that then shifts through to now. Um, and especially the sort of the intermediary periods my mind was like well there has to have been a day that was you know the day they closed the doors and then didn't continue operating anymore and then what did that next 10 years look like did you find out anything about that yeah well the one i mean the, i did this story about um a magdalene laundry that was in tempe which is um in sydney just slightly south of sydney about eight ten k's mm -hmm. um down, it was down the road from my house um, and it, it operated for 100 years. Now, it's it's gone. It's gone. There are now apartment blocks there. The the chapel and the, the little convent, they were preserved by heritage listing, but the laundry has just been wiped off the face of the earth and so has the dormitories for these women. Um, and there's no signage that, that says Magdalene Laundry or penitents, uh, prostitutes, because in the day, you know, that's you know, we say sex worker today, but, you know, 100 years ago when this was set up or more so, um, it was for, inverted commas, prostitutes, you know. But there's no there's no message down there at, at Tempe um, about why these were set up. So what I discovered is that the, the one at Tempe um, operated until 1979. Now, it wasn't, uh, in, in 1947, it stopped essentially being a Magdalene laundry it had, it, had, it had started to bring in adolescent girls sent by the courts. So it 
it kind of was pivoting to become a remand centre by the turn by, by the middle of last century, and then by the seventies it was essentially a girls' home, and, mm -hmm. and you know the kind of de facto remand centre is is the, the way I've kind of read the history. However, anybody who came into those doors was still uh, regarded as a sinner. So the, the theology behind the place changed a little bit in in terms of they, you know, they weren't, you know, to use the slang, um, oh, you know, I mean, they, they weren't, you know, sluts, prostitutes, you know, I'm doing air quotes here. You know, these, these might have been trouble girls. They might have been uncontrollable girls, you know, to, which was a charge. You could be charged with being uncontrollable if you didn't do what you were told. Um, but... So the one at Tempe operated until they, they turned the taps off in 1974. So adolescent girls, uh, girls as young as 11, um, operated these laundries without pay and and with almost you know, with next to no formal education as well. Um, the, working the laundry was seen to be their education, um, and so basically it this one at, at, in Sydney closed in 1974, basically because it was no longer socially acceptable. Like they couldn't, they could no longer get away with treating. Uh, girls and women like this um, and so it, it kind of closed for about it kind of uh, this institution for about another eight ten years it's still kind of accommodation for for, for for sometimes elderly women sometimes younger women but it it didn't have a way to pay for itself because uh, these institutions paid for themselves through um, unpaid labor um, but uh, yeah and then it just kind of disappears and then the one at Tempe bulldozed, not heritage listed, there's no signage down there. So it's just become this kind of secret now. Mm. Yeah. But I do want to say, um, mm. so the institution in Sydney was run by the Sisters of the Good Samaritan. In Melbourne, you've got um, Abbotsford. So Abbotsford was uh, a Magdalene laundry. Um, and the Sisters that ran Abbotsford, they have been quite proactive in the last decade or so. They've collected oral histories from women who uh, went through the institution and they have made uh, quite, I think, a genuine effort to come clean, mm -hmm. to use the metaphor, um, and to hear from survivors or people who identify as survivors um, about, you know, what they experienced because uh, finding out what these women experienced is very hard because it, it wasn't documented. Often these women, like a hundred years ago, were well um you know but so some some institute some orders of religious nuns have made efforts to listen to the people who were in their care who you know by our standards you know were mistreated um and other other religious orders have not done that um in england in um, ireland uh there's been a major report uh in because uh, um, ireland was a really there was one on every block almost i think in ireland that's what it kind of seems like um and um uh, there's some pretty horrific stuff that's come to light. I don't think the ones in Australia were quite as horrific because um, the women passing through these institutions, they, they generally left within two years. Two years, there was a kind of a mandatory period of two years, whereas in Ireland, uh, often women were there for life. So they died in these institutions. They were neglected in these institutions, not given health care in these institutions. So um, a lot has come to light in Ireland in the last, you know, 10 or more years um, uh, that, that's quite shocking, you know, 
Um, whereas I, I don't know that we will find that in Australia simply because women passed through these institutions rather than lived in them forever. Yeah, for the term of their natural life. <laughs> yeah, I know. And the fact that it's not common knowledge is really startling, right, that we don't know where this comes from. And one of the reasons that I think that that is quite confronting is because unless you've gone to university and done gender studies or you've really gone out of your way to examine the language that we often use, you know, that we live in a patriarchy, we live in a patriarchal society, if you don't really examine that, it's easy to see that as just a made-up idea that's not really real or real in some circumstances, but not that it was something that was really institutionally created, really enforced by the church and by the state um, in so many ways, including through the running of these laundries and now how that plays out if we think about the 16 days of activism, if we think about the drivers of gender-based violence that you know, we talk about from organisations like in Australia, we have Our Watch, um, who say, you know, the reason why this is such a pervasive issue, the reason why that I think right now we're at 64 women have allegedly died due to um, partner violence this year, um, is because we have this rigid gender stereotyping and we condone violence against women. And when I think about the laundries, like mm. they were enforcing rigid gender stereotyping and they were kind of condoning, like they were, were not kind of, they were condoning violence against women in a very specific way. So I wonder if we can, for, for people listening, kind of trace that a little bit, and particularly the um, the Madonna and the Magdalene binary. Mm. Uh, mm. How was that told then and how has it evolved now and how is it currently playing out in our modern society? Yeah. Um, I think it's, there's a week-long answer to that. No pressure, Donna. Like, easy one for you to answer, yeah? <laughs> Look, I think I think there's sort of um, a couple of things. Uh, one is, I think, it's also, it's embedded in language. So it's this thing about this is embedded in our language, therefore it's embedded in the way we think, and it's, in, it's embedded in our institutions. So our educational institutions, marriage is an institution, the church is an institution, et cetera. But if you go back to how language works, um, and, you know, we have weak and strong. We have, um, you know, um, female and male. You know, we have light and dark. You know, we have a binary way of thinking embedded in our language. And the female is always part of the binary that's weak, short, small, quiet it's always the, the, the sort of the, the negated the, the the negative or the negation men are always the positive the strong the, the you know the forceful the taking up space women like you know vaginas are uh, space like freud <laughs> you know the female body is lacking something you know mm -hmm. that we need to receive you know a penis before we know what you know you know what what the way the world works you know so we've women have always been conceived in, you know, at the level of language and therefore at the level of how we think in our philosophy and theology as um as lacking now also too if you go back to christian theology 
Adam and Eve. Um, Eve uh, gave Adam, she picked from the tree of knowledge. She wasn't, God said, don't do that. You can do anything else you like, but don't pick from the tree of knowledge. Eve picked from the tree of knowledge, she was tempted by the snake in the garden, Satan. Um, and she gave it to Adam to eat and he ate it. Now, Adam ate it, but she tempted him is the kind of thinking. And so from, you know, Genesis, the first book of the Christian Bible onwards, um, women have then been theologized as um, the temptress, the one who brings it, because when, um, and that's the, uh, for people who don't know, you, you know, the biting of the apple from the tree of knowledge um, was the fall of humankind. And so that's when pain entered the world, sin entered the world. That's when women, <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, were cursed by menstruation and cursed by um, painful childbirth. And so the, so from right from the beginning, you know, women's bodies, the capacity to give life, the capacity to menstruate and renew that part of our body every month, you know, which now we celebrate, you know, well, was, you know, we can celebrate if we see it like that as a gift, as, as a capacity, as a strength. Um, from the get-go, it was theologized as a curse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when <laughs> it's kind of like, where did we have to go from there except down? You know, like it was pretty hard. And so that kind of concept of women as being lacking or women being cursed, women being temptresses, you know, women who bring about the fall of the otherwise, of the otherwise you know, um, upright man, you know, good and, you know, proper man doing proper things. Um, you know, we, and so, so that's kind of like underlies so much of the theology that, mm. That has then evolved over centuries and centuries and centuries. And then it gets very complicated because then they turn um, Jesus's mother, Mary, into a perpetual virgin. And then and then that in terms of theology, <clears throat> and then um, no one can be like, no one, no one is a born-again virgin, no one is a perpetual virgin. Um, and so that leaves the rest of women in the, the other binary camp, which is, you know, somehow sexually tainted. Mm -hmm. You kind of get the whore, the Madonna, kind of, um, you know, and I'm using, you know, you know, language, you know, that that it's been rendered in, um, mm. and then in um, the reason to circle back to the Magdalene laundries, the reason they're called Magdalene, is because Mary Magdalene, um, in the Bible, in the Gospels, was a, a woman who came upon Jesus, um, and uh, he was having dinner, I think. And then she goes in, she cries, um, she, she kneels down and cries, cries on his feet, and then she washes his feet with her hair. And so that has been read through the centuries as um, uh, a woman so ashamed of her sins that she cries at the feet of Jesus and washes his feet with her hair. Um, now, it doesn't say in the Bible that she was a sex worker, prostitute to use the term time but she has been read as having been um a prostitute it says somewhere that she she had committed a big you know a, a grand sin or I can't, I can't remember the words but mm. you know but but it just was kind of like oh well if a woman has committed a big sin big enough to cry at the feet of jesus then it must have been sexual mm -hmm. it must be a, you know prostitute or sex worker um and so that's how you get the binary you know, have, forging itself within um, Christian thinking. You've got, you know, the Virgin Mary on one hand and you've got the the the, the repentant prostitute, Mag Mary Magdalene, on the other hand, so two Marys. So Christian thinking was kind of, in terms of gender, was strung across those, that, that sort of 
binary of two Marys. And so, mm. you know, and so the church was responsible, you know, for founding many institutions. And so that thinking then is informed in, you know, it, it, it then informs and underlays um, the thinking of institutions that are set up. Um, marriage is an institution set up, you know, women are property and, you know, men are, you know, and you've got to control women so they don't, you know, lead the man astray and, you know, all mm -hmm. of that. So, yeah, so it's, I mean, that, that's kind of a quick answer, I, I think, to a yes. really well, very big, very complicated question. And of course, I think that's sort of the religious lens. Um, and we have the motivations of the state or, you know, possible motivations of the state throughout history um, relating to, you know, indoctrinating women towards keeping the home and child rearing and producing as many more people because people equal a bigger economy and a bigger war force and therefore ability to continue to colonise. Um, but I think in terms of the, the pathway through you know, far gone history through the Magdalene laundries into to modern today. As you were explaining that then, now I'm thinking, okay, well, now a lot of that we at the surface would reject, right? We would say, well, you know, nobody in 2023 believes that women need to be pure and that if women aren't pure, then they need to go to a laundry and wash and work as a you know an unpaid labourer in horrible conditions until they never want to have sex again. But we do have these rigid gender stereotypes that persist now. So I'm curious, if in your words, what are some of the things, sort of the overhangs? What are the things that are still snuck in our society now from the Magdalene Laundry days? Well, I mean, I think even if you just take the issue around trans people. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like I think part of the um, uh, anxiety around trans people is that you don't fit into the binary. We don't know what to do with you. Mm. And, you know, we've subscribed to this binary view of, um, of, of gender forever and then you come along. Now, trans people haven't obviously just come along. I mean, they've always been there. Um, but, but, but now there's, an, you know, um, uh, you know, something we have to grapple with, mm. you know, because it's it's now in the public domain. Um, and so I think that's a that's an out, one of the outcomes of this very rigid um, uh, uh, gender stereotypes um, that the Magdalene Laundries were trying to enforce, you know, keeping mm. women in, in the domestic sphere. Um, mm. Magdalene Laundries were, you know, um, not only were they doing penance, but they were acquiring skills to then be domestic servants, um, in you know, and so to work in private homes and to hopefully, you know, um, be good good wives maybe one day, you know, um, and so that's what they were being trained to do. Um, so I think I think if you kind of look at look at the, look at the kind of moral panic that's sort of happening in so many quarters in America as well as here. Um, you, you know, around the trans issue, but, but you know, around non-binary, around, you, you know, um, non-conforming, <laughs> you know, people in general, whether, you know, they're, they're, they're men, women or, um, you know, self-determining, um, you know, there's, there's, there's that kind of moral panic that's happening. And I think it's because it's like there are only two boxes. What are you doing? There's only two boxes. And I think some people are, like, genuinely flummoxed and confused and horrified because they 
have been taught through their school system and taught through um, history or taught, taught through you know the church or whatever that it's like this is the only way to be these are the only options you have you, you know we mm. can't give you any more options um you know whereas you know there's obviously a different way of thinking which is you know we live on it i mean you know i do i did go to catholic school but i do remember very clearly being taught in biology that you know there's a continuum there's a continuum of sexuality um you know i was taught that way back you know and it's kind of like well if we can accept that people live along all sorts of continuums you know continuums of of, of gender but you know continuums of, of you know personality type or can you know like really like and also do we shift and you know we can shift and change depending on you know how our life is evolving and the choices that we're making and the people we're meeting or you know um but i just think you know um that i think because there's so much panic in the world people retreat back to certainties Mm. And I think that that's part of what we can see, and that's, and I think you know fundamentalisms, and if you kind of see, the, you know, the neo Nazism and and things like that, um, proto fascism, you know, like they're kind of a retreat back to certainties, mm -hmm. and back to please stay in the boxes. If everyone just stayed in their boxes, we'd be okay. Is kind of the thinking, um, and that's never going to happen. <laughs> you know, life is about negotiating who we want to be, you know, in relationship with others who are also deciding who they want to be. I mean, that's life as I understand it. Yeah. So. And I mean, it makes so, so much sense when you think about the way our brains are wired, right? Our brains love um, a black and white, a binary concept where they can say, if it does this, it goes in this box. If it does this, it goes in that box. You know, we love things like that where we can essentially take the shortcuts like when i'm talking about teaching kickboxing our brain's inherently lazy and it's looking for the quickest path well our brains are inherently lazy in pretty much every domain um, as a way to conserve energy and one of the ways that they love to do that is by grouping ideas together or grouping thoughts together or people or concepts um, and the thing is is that it's not it's not just what I think some people would like to think is that it's this flowery idea that like, oh, yes, well, it must be nice to have the capacity to think about things on a spectrum. But the reality is, is that when we separate things so much within binary systems, we create so much space for a power over system to be created within that, right? Because once we have separation, then who's the boss? It's no longer a spectrum and we're all working together and we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And so we collaborate. It is now, well, somebody's got to have power over somebody else. And when we have those kinds of systems, that's yep. where we see an epidemic proportion like we have now of violence and oppression, particularly violence against women and girls. So, and right, I'm not somebody who initially came into very like political science type of, of, of ideas, right? My background was in biology and science and I really liked these binary thought systems. And honestly, when I first came into facilitating trauma-informed kickboxing programs, I thought that thinking about the broader picture of intersectionality and the broader context that people are experiencing their trauma in was kind of irrelevant. I really was like, it's that's kind of, yeah, fine, but I don't want to waste my time with that because, like, in practice, what do I need to do when I'm working with someone in kickboxing? That's all I care about. And over time, I think really appreciating the complexity of 
how much our language, like you say, how much our societies, how much the things that we do and we do not accept shapes the context within which we experience violence and trauma and so many other things. Yeah. No, it's really huge. It's, you know, and, and you know, um, the days of activism and, and other ways of pushing back um, are vital and really important and we'll be doing it for hundreds of years to come because, mm. you know, and, and I think that's the thing, where we can only make the contribution we can make in, in our short life. Um, and, you know, I kind of sometimes think of the suffragettes. A lot of suffragettes died before they got the vote, you know, um, you know before women got the vote. Um, and so I kind of see myself as, as you know, that lineage. It's like I'm going to die before the, 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 the advance, you know, advancements that I've, you know, been working towards will be achieved. And if they are achieved, we can lose them again. I mean, Roe versus Wade in the States, you know, being an mm -hmm. example. Um, and so I think it's just this thing, if you're not part of the, the dominant culture, if power isn't yours to play around with, um, power is never conceded. You know, like, it, it, you know, it has to be, if you're lucky, negotiated. If you're not lucky, like, you know, you've got to forcefully somehow, you know, take it. Um, or, you know, this was a policy. I mean, there's so many ways. Um, but I think knowing... And mm. this, I, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I think knowing that, you know, these this power over structure, it really does underpin Western institutions and Western language. Um, and even if we, I, like today at work, I just did a, um, a training module on um, sexual harassment in the workplace, you know, and mm -hmm. how to do it <laughs> and, and, and why not to do it. And it was, you know, it was really great. And these policies, are, you know, they make you thoughtful in the workplace and they're really good. Um, but, you know, once I leave my workspace, you know, I have to, you know, catch a train with people. I have to, you know, negotiate the rest of the world. Those thought, you know, those underpinning, um, it's like the way society is wired. I mean, you, you talk about wiring of our brains, individual brains, but it's like our society is wired. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, for one group of people to have, you know, power over, you know, a, a, a larger group of people, all of those people being, you know, our, our you know, diversity in all its glory. <laughs> um, but uh, it, unfortunately, the, the power has rested in the hands of people who have benefited from the binary, from the split. And if you just look at the way women are trolled when they speak up in public domains, you know, through social media or the, the media itself, I mean, the you know, men tend not to get death threats when they speak in the public domain, but women do. You mm -hmm. know, um, the harassment Julia Gillard was subject to, you know, far outweighed, you know, the, the, in terms of its um, violence, um, you know, what men are normally subject to. Um, so we will always fight if we're not, you know, if we're not from the dominant class, we will always have to fight for space and we'll have to fight to maintain space and fight to create the rewiring. And, you know, we do it through our young people, we do it through our sons and daughters, you know, we do it through our institutions, we evolve. Um, and so for me, it's just being committed to that evolving of institutions, language, um, I'm a playwright, you know, in my other job. And so, you know, language is really important to me, how you negotiate and use language, what you affirm or not through language, choosing your language, 
you know, those sorts of things. I think that individually we can all um, be mindful about how we operate within the system and we can evolve our little patch of the system. Mm -hmm. Still understanding, I, like I do not have the power to change the system. I'm not, <laughs> I don't have that. But I can affect change within my little sphere. Um, you know, and that gives me hope every day. That gives me encouragement every day. It gives me joy every day um, to kind of like be out there doing that evolving, um, you know, doing your classes, you know, seeing, you know, different models of, you know, teaching and learning and being together. Like, because if enough of us do do that, um, hopefully it becomes attractive to people who are missing out on that and then they kind of jump on the train, you know. But, yeah, but I think it's, you know, you, I think we do this with our, wide, uh, with our eyes wide open. Like, you know, the cards are stacked against us, you know. But that's not to say that, I'm not, that I don't say that for a minute to be, uh, to give up, to be negative, to be bleak at all. It's kind of like, right, game on. That's what it means. That's what it means. And for people listening to this high percentage of martial artists, um, some who run facilities, some who participate in um, classes alongside other people that are not necessarily the Conscious Combat Club, right? They're not talking about patriarchy and thinking about ways to take up space and, um, you know, it might be a, a different environment, but that's probably an environment where a lot of folks listening to this show can potentially create change when you just spoke about, you know, within your little bubble. If somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, first of all, like, I'm feeling a little bit shell-shocked and you've just spoken about all these concepts that I've never really thought about um, ever and I'm quite overwhelmed, but I'm kind of picking up a bit of what you're putting down and I can understand there's been historical oppression of women, we have continued oppression of women and I can see how, yes, you know, putting women in either pure or unpure camps has you know, contributed towards being able to control women and up until now we still have the overhangs of that which is still, you know, causing the violence that we're seeing. I want to be able to do something that also disrupts that system in some small way. What are some of the ways that people can engage with that, particularly in the martial arts context? In martial arts context, well, um, I I mean, I ended up in your classes, um, mm -hmm. Georgia, because I wanted to own my fight response mm -hmm. because I I grew up in a violent household um, and I find it I I almost don't have the capacity to do anger. Mm -hmm. It kind of got unplugged. And so at the point at which I, you know, I'm in a situation where I should get angry, I blank. Mm -hmm. So I joined your classes because I heard one of your podcasts about the, the legitimacy, the validity of the fight response, pushing back, taking up space, protecting yourself. And I had never thought of myself as someone who could actively protect myself. If I wasn't protected, then I, it was like kind of like bad luck, you know, like I copped, I just had to cop it, you know. Mm -hmm. The thought that I could redefine my own sense of myself as a gendered person because I, I am female identifying and female but to redefine it for me and mm -hmm. say no anger I can have anger as a woman I can own a fight response as a woman I can learn how to work with that fight energy in a way 
that creates space for me, that sets a boundary between me and other people, that asserts what I want or don't want. So for me, you know, it starts with your body. You know, mm-hmm. it starts in my body, how I am in my body. And if I can own my body in a way that is assertive, owns my fight response um, and uses it responsibly, like I'm not talking about hitting people randomly, but, you know, like own that energy. That energy is given to us by our, our you know, our wise bodies um, as all the other uh, responses are. So they're there for a reason. They're a capacity we have when we need them. And it's a capacity I was kind of, it was erased because of how I was brought up as a woman, as a girl in a particular, in a Catholic family, in, in my particular society. So, so yeah, so I would, so that's, you start, that's where I start. I start from my body. I start from re- rethinking um, myself as a gendered person. I'm going to define what that is. Thank you very much. You know, I'm not going to be demure. I'm not going to be obedient. Like, you know, I'm not going to think in your boxes, you know. And so for me, it kind of starts from there. And then, you know, then it branches out into, well, what am I part of? And so when um, I was looking to do uh, kickboxing, because I heard your podcast but knew you were in Melbourne, Sydney, Mm. and I thought, oh, I can't go and join her classes. I didn't know you had the online ones. So I started looking around my neighbourhood. And I was quite shocked. (laughs) You know, it's also, you know, macho and aggressive. And I went to one and did a free class. And, um, you know, this man shamed this, you know, boy because he was talking while he was giving a demonstration. It wasn't disruptive. He just leant over and said something to his mate. It was so harmless. But then he spent like about five minutes shaming this kid. And I just thought, oh, no, I will not subscribe to this behaviour. So I suppose my other answer to that is when you join something, join something that's in line with those values, your values, join some, you know. So I found out your, about your online classes and now I'm, you know, learning kickboxing um, in a trauma-informed space that respects, you know, you know, whoever we are, as we are. And I love that. We can be who, you know, as we are and that's just an accepted space um, um, and there's, there's no expectations on us other than the expectations we set for ourselves in your classes. And, and that I want to be part of those organisations, those conversations, those worlds. So I only give my energy now to mm-hmm. um, where I have the choice to. I mean, obviously, I've got a job and, you know, sometimes you can't always choose. But um, where I can choose, I choose to join people, organisations, paradigms, you know, mm-hmm. so ways of thinking, um, value systems that um, are person-centred um, rather than, you know, uh, fixated on a binary that ultimately is going to be destructive. So I think you can just be, you know, you know, if you, if you, you know, are part of a faith community or part of a school community or part of a book club, I don't know, whatever, a car club. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you can kind of start to, to look with this lens at, at, you know, all of the things you're part of and say, well, do I, you know, is is something innately, because, you know, violence is in language. Violence mm-hmm. in who gets to do the washing up. You know, violence is in, you know, a lot of the behaviours. And you can kind of start to think, okay, well, I see this here, um, but I'm not going to subscribe to it by joining it. And then I will go over here and I will join George's, you know, <laughs> kickboxing instead of, 
Adonis's kickboxing <laughs> or whatever it was called. Um, so, I, you know, I think I think it's that. It's like you 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 um, think about what you're part of, and you just be mindfully part of that, and you know, move aside if it's not serving you and others in a way that you see as kind and inclusive. I think. So, for me, it's about creating non-violent spaces. Yeah, and that is the perfect way to summarize, right? Creating non-violent spaces because I think also your story really clearly illustrates for people who don't often, people who run gyms don't often get to have conversations with the person who comes for one class and leaves and never comes back. And I think a lot about the missed opportunity there because it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy where you then start to hear a narrative which is all oh, women don't want to learn combat sports. And I hear this a lot. You know, why don't you market towards women? Well, because women don't want to learn combat sports. But of course, if you create a situation where somebody comes and they see the way that somebody else is shamed or they don't feel represented in the space and they're like, oh, I, I really want to do this, but, you know, this is not going to be for me then they're not going to join. And then that means the other person who would have come, who would have seen another woman in the class who might have then stayed, right? And I think it really can snowball. It snowballs in the opposite direction. And what that does is it then reinforces this idea, oh, women don't like combat sports. Women don't like being sweaty. They don't like being gross. They don't like these environments. Combat sports don't have to be so gross. They can be a little bit gross, but they don't have to be quite as gross as they are. You don't have to have unwashed gloves that have been collecting stale sweat for decades um, and make you want to faint when you put them on. It doesn't have to be that bad, right? Um, and I think that it becomes just like everything, right, where we say, oh, well, you know, that for so long they said that, you know, well, women just really like looking after houses because, look, they're all doing it. They're all staying at home, Right. You know, oh, women don't want to be police officers. Look, no, there are no women police officers. Women don't want to be surgeons. There are no surgeons who are women. Like, it, it, it becomes this self-fulfilling thing where I think that if you also think about the spaces that you inhabit and ways that you can think about, well, who is the person that I'm not marketing to? And I should say I know that is hard. For people who are running small businesses who have a limited amount of resources to put into advertising, I understand that it makes sense to put those resources towards, you know, a return on your investment so that you can also continue to look after yourself and your families. Where you might say, well, if I market to women and I get three women, but if I market to men, I'll get 15 men, you know, and I need that kind of customer return that's one way to look at it but another way to look at it is like well what are all the other things that you're doing because if you've got marketing towards men but a woman comes in and she sees you shaming somebody for something where the participant is paying you to be there I don't know how often I say this but it blows my mind how much martial arts instructors will shame people for being late for talking and we have these like really ingrained respect principles and in uh, Japanese martial arts they call this senpai kohai which means seniors are above juniors literally means power over um we feel like we need to keep reinforcing those and nobody's really stopped to pause to say wait 
do I want to keep doing this? Because they had to essentially eat shit for years when they were the bottom of the rank. And now that they're at the top, it's finally their turn to enact that power. But it will keep going if we don't disrupt yeah. that cycle, right? Mm, 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 mm. And and be aware of the system that, mm. that we're entering. Um, like that was that was an, an example of, you know, I didn't like the system, you know, the way that particular gym was run. Um, and so I elected not to be part of it, not to perpetuate that. Yeah. That is something that we've spoken about quite a bit on this show and I think, we'll, you know, warrants revisiting. The most powerful way that you have to vote in our capitalist society is with your wallet. Mm. And so it, to me is no longer a good enough reason. Like I understand everybody's got loyalty. Loyalty is so embedded in martial arts and we feel like this person's invested in me. Never mind that you've been investing in them by paying for their classes for the whole time that you've been going there. I'm sure they haven't been giving you free classes. Um, you know, I've got I've got my belt under them or I've competed under them or all my friends are there. There are so many things that hold us in these structures. But, you know, your spidey senses, essentially your intuition can often tell you pretty quickly. Um, and then soon following after that, you'll see genuine literal examples for you know, things that don't align with your values, but oftentimes we'll put up with them. Um, and, and it is important to pause at that point to say that also Donna and I come from incredibly privileged spaces where we have the capacity to do online settings because we have access to the technology to do that. We also live in Melbourne and Sydney, arguably two huge cities where we can, you know, take public transport or use a car to go to a different location if we're not happy with the service we're experiencing somewhere and some people are in small towns where there's one gym oh. um, and you don't want to upset that person because you're going to see that person all the time at the supermarket and at church or you know everywhere that you're um going to go so i understand this complexity here like with everything, right? You shouldn't just take it at face value and say like, oh, well, but what about in this situation? But I think for a lot of us, we do have opportunities to um, take action that is led by values. And that's really what the 16 days of activism is about for me, right? I don't want it to be this like vague 16 days where, you know, I shock a whole lot of people when they tell me that like, oh, domestic violence this doesn't really happen in Australia, right? Well, that only happens in rural communities or, you know, well, that doesn't happen in my suburb. Someone the other day was like, well, I live in Brighton. I don't think that happens there. I was like, I don't think Brighton is exempt from um, domestic violence, unfortunately. Um, it's And it's not just shocking people for a second for them to go back to then being like, oh, well, you know, that's just something that happens behind closed doors and, you know, I don't want to intervene in other people's lives and all of the excuses that we use, but there are real tangible things that I think being, keeping in mind the gender stereotyping that we do enforce, um, things like sexual harassment in the workplace, like what you mentioned, and if we think back to... Um, the Magdalene laundries as well like it, it feels kind of weird in 2023 to be like don't slut shame people but that is the translation of what we should learn from the Magdalene laundries now you know yeah it was institutional slut shaming um and the purpose of that I mean well that that we you know um the purpose of that was to make women docile you know, mm. client 
um, you know, um, uh, put them back into the domestic sphere, uh, you know, return them to, you know, a status of property, really, you know, <laughs> men. Um, so, and, you know, and there's a section of the population that's always benefited from that, you know, that binary. So. Yeah. Listening, and I highly recommend if anyone's found this interesting to go and, and listen to the ABC episode where they were reading out the things that the church proclaimed about how they've done so well. And they, I can't remember exactly what they said, something like, and the women are the most docile and the most obedient. And I was like, this was like a real bragging point to say that, you know, we've got these penitent women or they're going to be penitent once we've finished with them, but even before they've completed their penance, you know, that the, the um, nuns are so great at doing their jobs that these women are so obedient and so docile, you know, they weren't allowed to speak and they're forced to work. So I don't know really what else you could be. Yeah. That language yeah. is so confronting. It's confronting and it's it's today, to our ears today, it's, it's kind of, it's like a black comedy. I mean, it's, it's both horrific and laughable, mm. horrific and, you know, because that was the uh, intended outcome was to make women passive, docile, domesticated, tamed. It mm. was, for me, I've seen it as, as, as um, an attempt to tame women um, and um, I, I just find that concept so so horrible because you know not only do women miss out on you know leading full lives with you know full age um women of the world misses out on you know all their gifts and talents and strengths uh, you know so yeah so it's a it's a they were terrible institutions but as we've said you know that thinking is still embedded you know in our expectations about you know women in general in western society you know how we should behave you know or you know are expected to behave um if you look at like consent laws and things i mean the 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 ructions around you know in, you know bringing in those changes in the last few years i mean thanks to some of that discussion um you know it's it's um very embedded but you know it's you know it's a day at a time a step at a time you evolve it as you can um you know you find like minds um you know you link hands and keep going yeah absolutely and i think that it can feel overwhelming like you say a step at a time is something that's so important to think about you're not going to dismantle the patriarchy um on your own or in our lifetime like it's um it's not realistic to to think about that but the the small actions that we take whether that is calling out a sexist joke voting with your wallet and going to a different you know, a different space, making values aligned decisions, you know, um, domestically sharing the load. There's so many small things that we can be doing that, you know, from those little things, bigger things and bigger change can certainly happen. And really, like, when you think about what, how, I think it can set the scene for you know, big reform to come through and when we're having these conversations where we're saying, like, is it a good idea to have affirmative consent laws? There wouldn't be so much pushback, right? People would be like, oh, yep, that does seem like a pretty good idea rather than being like, oh, but what? Am I going to have to ask? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think this is the key. Like, you know, it's, it's one of the indicators that it's like, you know, when the laundry in Tempe closed in 1974, it, it kind of was forced to close because it was socially unacceptable. Mm. Society, you know, they, they couldn't, you know, governments wouldn't fund it, social services wouldn't support it, you know, courts wouldn't send the girls there anymore, you know, you know, all of those things. And so yeah. it's like with, with affirmative consent laws, like there's, there's now a, a different um, uh, way of thinking about this because it's no longer socially acceptable um, for women's bodies to just be thought to be available to men, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just because men decide you know, <laughs> women are theirs for the taking. Um, and so I think it is like evolving things uh, to the point where social acceptability changes. Yes. You know? And that's that's what you and I and, and the listeners can be part of, like evolving those expectations so that they become a new norm. I love it. I think that's a great place to leave the conversation for now. Um, I know that you've got some amazing work in terms of trauma-informed writing um your organization just looking i don't want to get it wrong the powerhouse youth theater um can people get involved with those organizations is there any way to connect with you online about them um yeah we i'm, I'm part of an organization in west Sydney. um called powerhouse youth theater um or, or pyt fairfield our um our website is pytfield.com.au, I think. Um, and we are in Sydney's western suburb, Fairfield. Um, and Fairfield is the most culturally diverse uh, community in the entire country. Mm -hmm. um, so we work um, with, you know, across, across cultures, across faiths mm -hmm. um, and uh, abilities as well within our community. Uh, we've got a fairly strong queer um, contingent amongst our young people. Um, and because of the fact that we also have a lot of refugees and migrants as well. Um, and so our uh, programs are very much informed by, um, a, we, you know, we think about colonization, like we think about over, like we think about you know how we can claim and own and forge and reshape the spaces cultural spaces mm -hmm. and so a lot of our work comes from that kind of paradigm um and being trauma informed is part of part of that mix you know um so if anyone's interested in um we you know we we, we do theater we do festivals you know film festivals you know we we have a lot of young people uh, dance is really big in so we do a lot of dance works as well um and so if someone's interested in you know theater that or theater or performance or filmmaking that comes from a, a, a different space to the, the the dominant culture then then you know get in touch um and if you're in western sydney come and see our shows um we've got a, a few shows and festivals um coming you know as we head towards the end of the year so pyt um dot au i think is our website mm -hmm. um, so that's yes have a look there i'm the chairperson I, i'm a founding member of that company and a long-term uh, fan and and um, current um, co-chair um uh, otherwise we could uh, uh i could make my uh i'm on facebook if people want to find me on facebook just donna abella um i'm on instagram i don't really check instagram but <laughs> facebook's probably the easiest way to find me 
Awesome. We'll put all of that information in the show notes if people want to connect. And thank you so much for your time and coming on the show and for all of the hours of research that went into bringing the forgotten histories of the women of the Magdalene Laundries into 2023 and beyond. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for being part of the club. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch, please refer to the information in the show notes. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider leaving us a review or subscribing on whichever platforms you use to listen or watch the podcast. The Conscious Combat Club acknowledges the traditional owners of the lands in which we work, live and play. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We'd like to say thank you to Nari for the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. If you'd like to connect with Nari, you can find her on Instagram at Nari the Sagar. Don't gotta tell you what my name is, I don't gotta explain it. Walk in the room, hear a boom erupting like I'm famous. I'm here shedding shells, I'm shameless. I fear nothing, no complacence. Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one that power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets we're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifesting of collecting all their tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands I break all these bars, barriers, and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers because I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass. I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much. I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me because I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no really. You can't afford it, you cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?